This is In Focus from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. Each episode of In Focus brings you in-depth analysis and perspective from a different corner of our global network of experts. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Asia In Focus. My name is Amit Narayan, and I lead the control risk business in South Asia, based out of New Delhi. South Asia has been hit hard by a second wave of the COVID-19 infections over the past few months, with India alone registering at least 140,000 fatalities since April 2021. Bangladesh, Nepal, and other countries in the region were equally badly hit. As the region slowly recovers from the devastating public health crisis, I wanted to discuss what lies ahead for South Asia's post-pandemic recovery with Hemant Shivakumar, Delhi-based senior analyst and South Asia policy expert at Control Risks. So Hemant, as a primer, what is the current lay of the land as we speak in mid-June 2021? And what lies ahead for South Asia's post-pandemic recovery? Can you give us a quick political and economic update on how the second wave of the pandemic has impacted the various economies in this region? Sure, Amit. Thanks very much for having me on the show. In South Asia, let's, let's begin with India. India emerged as the worst affected country during the second wave. Especially what came under scrutiny was the federal administration's poor policy responses and its perceived failure to forestall the second wave. And let's also not forget there was a vaccination campaign that significantly slowed down uh, between April and May that that just added to the broader public concern over how the second wave was playing out. As a result of which, there has been significant uh, criticism among several citizen groups, opposition parties uh, against the federal administration. And to some extent, this has dented, and perhaps this is the first time that we have seen in over seven years uh, the the implications of this denting Prime Minister Narendra Modi's uh, popularity. But at the federal level, there's no immediate threat to political stability, largely because when uh, Prime Minister Modi's uh, Bharati Janata Party was re-elected in 2019, it won an overwhelming majority with uh, 300 plus seats in the federal parliament itself. And the elections are also not due uh, until 2024, the general polls, uh, I mean. As far as India's neighbor Nepal is concerned, I think what we are seeing play out very strongly is political instability. The Prime Minister Khadga Prasad, the Oli's government recently got dismissed. The president had to dissolve the parliament and uh, call for snap general elections by the end of 2021. Again, Leading up to that, there's going to be significant political instability. But what this also brings into perspective is the broader issues of how the pandemic is likely to be managed within uh, Nepal itself. As far as Bangladesh, Sri Lanka and Maldives are concerned, all these three countries and including Bhutan, all these four countries have finished up with their round of elections and they have fairly stable governments that are at the helm managing the pandemic. And uh, therefore, for example, Bhutan is also increasingly administering uh, vaccine doses to its population. So there there is a broader semblance of stability in these four countries that we are seeing at present. But as as far as the broader uh, South Asian region is concerned, you're likely to see significant strain on public finances. 
but i suspect india and bangladesh uh, the two countries will be critical and key economic performers in the region they're likely to register faster but slightly lopsided uh, economic recoveries in the months ahead uh, but again across south asia what is also likely to play out is socio economic pressures largely on the back of strain in public finances and a very difficult economic environment so some of these for businesses especially they might prolong operational challenges and regulatory uncertainty in the coming months Thank you. So that's actually a lot to kind of pick through in the next few minutes. But let me kind of summarize what you're trying to say. You're saying that there is a broad sense of political stability because of elections having taken place relatively recently in strong governments in four of the six markets in South Asia, with Nepal being an outlier. But I'm also hearing you say that fiscal pressures will prevail, that there will be an overwhelming kind of socio-economic cleave that might come up, but most critically, perhaps significant headwinds on the economic front. Uh, so let's kind of go down that particular topic and look at each of the jurisdictions separately, starting potentially with India. What do you think from an economic perspective India is in for? That's an interesting question. Uh, from what we are seeing with India's central bank, which recently released its estimates, uh, India recorded its uh, worst economic contraction of approximately 7.3% in the previous fiscal year, which is the 2020-2021 fiscal year. But let's also not forget that this contraction comes on the back of an economic slowdown that was already underway even before the pandemic. So you've had uh, a huge banking crisis that has been uh, un- that, that has been afoot since 2015, and you also had uh, economic shocks such as uh, the demonetization of currency notes as well as huge tax introduction of the goods and services tax across India as well. So to a large extent, the economic shocks now then just fed into the pandemic uh, trigger economic contraction as well. So that slowdown is likely to continue. So what we are very much going to see from as a follow direct follower of the second wave is uh, some of this economic stress will intensify. So businesses might consider suspending or even shuttering operations. But as far as the political fallout is concerned, I think getting India's economy back on track will be Prime Minister Modi's steepest challenge. Interestingly, at the federal level, while the polls are only until 2024, there are important state elections that are coming up next year in 2022. And I think the key message Prime Minister Modi would want to take to the voters across these six states is, you know, the economy is back on track. We've been able to create jobs and therefore there is a recovery that is underway as well. And just quickly digressing from that and speaking about how the economic recovery might look like more broadly across India, given that it's a highly federated structure, you're likely to see industrialized states such as Tamil Nadu and Karnataka and Southern India, Gujarat and Maharashtra and Western India. All of these have a larger tax and revenue base. So they're slightly better place to offer the kind of support that businesses need and register faster recoveries. But the federal level itself, I think it'll continue to be a bit of challenge, largely because there are global economic headwinds that are under play here. There is consumer demand within India itself that's significantly slowing. High fuel prices, which the federal administration did not have to contend with for the first six, seven years of its uh, governing period. And you've also had disinvestment messages that have not really taken off well. So those goalposts are a little tricky at the federal level, but I think at the state level, there's still a little bit of room for optimism. Uh, Hemant, I feel like you're vacillating a little bit and I'm going to kind of press you a little bit more. Uh, You know, it's clearly belt tightening times. I understand that. Uh, I think we all do. India is expected to be under about 90% of uh, GDP worth of debt 
uh, by the end of this fiscal year. Is there something that the Indian government can do, you know, by way of triggering private spending or corporate investments? Uh, is there a silver bullet or is it just a long, hard slog that uh, we are all staring at in India? I think, Amit, the answer should be somewhere in the middle, largely because there are a few measures that are already afoot that the Indian government has already taken at the federal level, uh, one of which we saw was the streamlining of labor laws in last year. The enactment of some of these complex labor laws and simplifying them and putting out into like streamlined labor codes is something, it's, it's a huge operational reform that's been afoot. Uh, the government has also prioritized investments into strategic infrastructure projects as well. And this is, again, something that we've seen play right after the first wave of the pandemic. And again, disinvestments will remain a key priority as the government looks to privatize some of these uh, state-owned enterprises and generate some uh, revenues as well. Alongside that, the federal government's focus will also be to develop India as a key hub in the global supply chain. And as a result of which, there, there are likely to be rules that are that will be eased to allow investments into sectors such as manufacturing, uh, and, and so that India is able to better reorient itself and uh, be competitive in that space in, in, in the coming years as well. One another sector I think we are likely to see more government backing towards is again infrastructure, where the Indian government has already set up you know wealth funds to continue to back critical infrastructure projects. So. Again, that's a line that will continue to strengthen in the coming year, especially as uh, the government, the federal administration looks to get those investments going to specific sectors like renewables, energy, and other areas where th there's a lot more investments required. And you're willing to stick your neck out and say that India will get to 10% growth this year? I think that that would be a little uh, optimistic. I I think what we will do, what we will see is definitely an economic rebound. And some this rebound will, again, as I had mentioned, will be led by some of the industrialized states, which will be in a position to better kind of capture and start leading recoveries. And traditionally, when India has had significant economic growth, it's also come on the back of very strong state performances. And I think, again, the answer to that, the broader economic story, again, lies with the states. So what businesses will should watch out for is again what happens at the state level at the federal level yes the, uh, the government will look to ease uh, investment rules kind of get uh, more external capital inflows into sectors but equally at the state level it should be imperative for businesses to look at what are some of the states that are able to capture or ease investment rules because given india's federal structure i think it's an interesting it's, it's a very key component for businesses to watch out for especially how things play out at the state level Okay, I understand that. Uh, still a few caveats. There is still a way that we can get to at least a high single-digit economic growth in this year in India. Let's kind of zoom out a little bit and get to Bangladesh, which uh, is rapidly emerging as my favorite story over the last kind of 18 months. Um, uh, you know, just over the last couple of years, best performing economy in South Asia, highest per capita income. Uh, how do they keep their kind of emerging economic miracle story going? Such a fantastic prospect. If any, Bangladesh's growth prospects are currently steady. And uh, as you mentioned, it's, it's it's one of the countries that is expected to outperform its neighbors in South Asia. So that, that very much remains on track, despite some of the economic headwinds from the pandemic. 
And what's really interesting to note here is that Prime Minister uh, Sheikh Hasina and her administration will continue to press on offering fiscal support to the ready-made garment sector, which still is a critical component of Bangladesh's economy and generates uh, a significant portion of uh, foreign exchange revenue as well. And what Bangladesh will also do, I think, from the government's point of view, it will double down on its manufacturing capabilities because that's, again, another message that's clearly emerged from this pandemic. Bangladesh has a very competitive wage environment. Its manufacturing capabilities, especially in the apparel segment, is a second to none. And therefore, the government will continue to back, double down on that and back this sector with fiscal incentives and other additional forms of support. But again, that's not to take away from the broader challenge that Bangladesh will face with, which is to diversify its economy and reduce its reliance on the ready-made garment sector, at least in absolute terms, as we move ahead in the months. And that's where my kind of point was going to be as well. I think any Bangladesh watcher worth their salt would know that the export story is very well understood, right? The retail merchandising goods sector, etc. But I think there is, and, and, and the infrastructure spending as well. I mean, the miracle of the make now is brought on by, you know, the power plants, the bridges and all of those. So, so that's good. But there's also a story of uh, social welfare spending in health and education, you know, areas other than infrastructure, as well as fiscal prudence in ensuring that this country is better positioned even today to manage anything that the pandemic may have to throw at it. Uh, What do you make of that? It's really interesting to observe because not only was Bangladesh able to offer significant fiscal support, it was also able to better target that to specific sectors. Like you, you have the garment sector where it was able to better direct that kind of like fiscal stimulus. It was able to offer that to its factories as well. So, so Bangladesh has been able to rebound, get back on track, even during the first wave, faster than uh, a few other countries in the region as well. And to what we are seeing so far, this this is a similar story that's that's again playing out. The Bangladesh government had imposed a two-month lockdown, but that's kind of easing. And again, you've had this support towards like key critical social welfare spending towards uh, sectors such as health and education and infrastructure, uh, being able to alleviate some of these broader macro risks from playing out adversely. That's an area where you also are seeing a lot more actors, such as non-governmental actors, step in Bangladesh and also support the government so far on that track. That's such a great point. I mean, the fact that non-governmental, potentially even private sector, is being able to step in into areas that are traditionally held close by the by the government. So I do agree. I mean, the commendable social indicators and the greater elbow room that the government has fiscally does place the country in very good place for a decade of growth. Let me, uh, again, ask you about other nations across South Asia, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, Maldives, and even Nepal. Uh, some some thoughts on how they're faring? Yes. I mean, from what we're looking at India and Bangladesh, it's slightly a little bit of a contrast because Sri Lanka, Bhutan, and Maldives, uh, predominantly one of the main focus on their economies is tourism. And it's also a key employment generator and a revenue generator across all these three countries. But given that air travel will continue to remain restricted and with infections continuing to play out in some of these countries as we speak, tourism is likely to remain under significant strain in the coming months as well. Interestingly, what this might trigger is significant economic stress. But this, from from a geopolitical point of view, Sri Lanka might also increase its reliance on uh, uh, looking at Chinese assistance, 
perhaps to plug revenue shortfalls. Such kind of reliance is also going to compound Sri Lanka's debt servicing scenario. It owes its debt servicing requirements already are kicking into place from 2021 itself. So that's also an area for investors to continue to watch out how Sri Lanka, Bhutan and Maldives, for instance, are able to navigate this environment and reduce or and see how they can uh, mitigate some of the risks from the economic stress due to the pandemic. As far as Nepal is concerned, I think the broader story for Nepal is how the political instability factor plays out, what are the results of the elections that are likely to be held in November as well. So the business and the operational environment to a large extent will be determined by how some of these factors play out. But I think more broadly across South Asia itself, you know, the economic headwinds may also prompt state, municipal and local level provincial agencies to amend taxes or renegotiate public contracts, uh, largely to show flagging revenues. And therefore, maintaining that kind of operational and institutional challenges for businesses. So that's, again, an area for our clients to watch out as well. And therefore, looking at detailed provincial stakeholder level stakeholders, what is the regulatory environment going to look like and how are countries able to better navigate some of these economic stresses? I think these are key components that businesses and investors will have to watch out for across these three countries. That's true. And that's a very, very good point. You've kind of very naturally kind of taken us to the so what aspect of this conversation, which is, uh, you know, what can companies, our clients expect going forward? I want to kind of ask you what you see as being the kind of trajectory of the policy and regulations regime across all these countries, but also some of the bigger economies in light of the pandemic, but also in light of the significant economic stresses. Do you see a change of heart or a change of stance uh, from uh, any of these governments? I think the key message that political stakeholders will look to drive across the South Asian region is that of economic recovery. And that, that bit is like quite clear. Also because it makes a lot of sense for them politically. So to mitigate any sort of political backlash, the messaging around the economic recovery will continue to play out in the years ahead. Uh, but what we'll see in terms of the policy environment could also be a mix of populist decisions that will come on the back of uh, such messaging. But beyond that, uh, just in terms of the socioeconomic cleavages that I was talking about earlier, I think job creation is going to be something that's absolutely key across most of these countries. It's going to be a major political focus for political readers. You've had a spate of industrial and business shutdowns over the first and the second waves. You've had a vaccination program across South Asia that's still slowed and not had the majority of the population actually being inoculated. Alongside that, you already have countries like India, Sri Lanka and Nepal recording some of their highest unemployment rates amidst the second wave. So that's going to be a huge fallout from the second wave itself or from for infection surges in, in, as we go ahead too. The lack of job prospects itself will, more than the economic uncertainty, will raise risks of localized unrest because uh, unions and groups are likely to jostle and seek some level of affirmative action, wage changes, or more direction from the government over job quotas. So in that in that sense, it's going to be a very shrill and a very vociferous uh, environment that's that's going to play out. That's going to be an immediate uh, impact of not just the second wave, but the broader economic uncertainty. But what uh, 
moving on to a level further what could this could also mean is political leaders would then have limited legroom to really kind of push forth with their fiscal measures or other kind of key decisions uh, they they might have to acquiesce to some some of these pressures from uh, labor groups and therefore some of the requirements might be requiring domestic workers to be enrolled so businesses will have to look at that as well and interestingly we have also seen this already play out in haryana state in northern india where uh, basically the state government passed a legislation that required uh, almost all businesses to appoint uh, labor local labor at least 75% of local labor for jobs that pay less than 50000 indian rupees so that kind of regulatory uncertainty will generate unique compliance pressures for businesses uh, and th- this is also going to come alongside as leaders ease investment rules for capital intensive sectors such as infrastructure development energy and manufacturing but job generation is going to be the key as you know across south asia as leaders continue to press businesses and continue to look for investment opportunities that are seen to take people along that are seen to be job generating that can create more jobs and therefore polit- make political stakeholders look good that that's going to be a huge social economic aspect that will play out it seems to be a treacherous inverse relationship you know the need for private investment but the need for greater public regulation and at the end of the day it's job seekers who vote and companies all of which are democracies are countries here in south asia politicians are going to be very very conscious that giving companies you know a free hand or a freer hand to run their operations could come at a cost because you know their own desire for efficiencies etc so what's the end game here i mean is there a i mean we have been a little bit more dire than i would have liked to be but i think that's the lay of the land here is there anything that south asian that the companies that operate here in south asia specifically you know a lot of our clients can do to keep their nose up is there a silver lining i mean by way of silver lining i think i've got definitely one one word that's going to be technology i mean the, while the broader story very much is going to be a lopsided recovery you know you might have economies not really meeting optimistic estimates that were uh, that analysts had expected from earlier this year or even like last year i think what we are likely to see very strongly play out is uh, the broader reliance on technology enterprises across south asia you've had significant uptick in internet use that's kind of like really exploded and then the pandemic restrictions and lockdowns and operational issues have just catalyzed some of these developments and as a result of which what we are seeing and to to some extent this had already been a foot uh, even before the pandemic uh, but these factors have really created and catalyzed opportunities for the growth of like big technology firms and internet startups uh, especially in places like bangladesh and india where you you are seeing a broader interest and more investments in these sectors as well because there are relatively higher levels of internet penetration that we are seeing across uh, both india and bangladesh i actually picked bangladesh as an example it's the technology story in bangladesh itself is there have been significant investments that have been coming in and it's intriguing because a lot of these investments are also led by bangladeshis who have settled abroad so the diaspora is kind of uh, contributing back to some of these exactly to some of these technology enterprises that are booming in bangladesh and at least under the pandemic what we have seen in bangladesh is increase in financial tech in fact e-commerce and education technology as well those kind of like services that we were earlier referring to in terms of social welfare 
some of these have uh, seen broader investments and in fact the government's information and communication technology ministry recently it was in march or april 2021 backed about 50 bangladesh startups and offered funds for their development across bangladesh so you you likely to see that story play out very prominently in bangladesh and it also comes at a time when the government, uh, the Bangladeshi government wants to diversify. So what you're likely to see is the tech recovery story play out strongly in Bangladesh. Coming to India, I think it's a similar story because you've already had the services sector and a broader technology driven base across India. And that's just consolidated. That's just picked up uh, under the first and the second waves. But you're also seeing more and more firms trying and leveraging some of these digital adoptions. So you have, you know, sectors like healthcare, supply chains, fast mover consumer goods, and even agriculture. You know, some areas which are skeptical of technology-based additional support now actually increasing their reliance on technology. This is quite evident from the number of uh, startups, and in fact, like sectors such as e-gaming, startups in sectors like e-gaming getting listed on India Start Ex- uh, India Stock Exchange. Uh, but equally, you have uh, India's tech startups that were able to raise about nine billion US dollars in 2020-2021, spread across sectors like consumer healthcare, finance, edtech, and gaming. And I mean, even looking at education technology, uh, that's again been a story that's been quite uh, stark in India because uh, you've had a lot of mergers and acquisitions happen in that space, a broader adoption of education and the technology interface by a variety of schools, educational institutions, and colleges who are rolling out different types of courses. Uh, so interestingly, this business impact, but there's also been a significant social impact as well. So in contrast, I think capital-intensive industries uh, like infrastructure development, energy, renewables, and manufacturing, they are likely to register slightly slower growth because you have credit and external financial constraints. You have uh, global economic headwinds, uh, headwinds as well that are continuing to play out. But equally, some of these sectors are more susceptible to local operational challenges. And which is why it's a lopsided recovery. Yeah. Hemant, let me try and get a closing prognosis from you on the way forward for Satya because I think you're kind of listing out in, in great detail and with a lot of insight and candor what is in store. But can you say in kind of closing couple of minutes, give us a sense of what to look forward to for South Asia. Perfect, Amit. Yeah, I'll probably list it out as three key areas for businesses to look out. And one is uh, operational challenges for businesses in South Asia, especially triggered by the pandemic and slow vaccination rates, because that, that's a trend that you're likely to see play out in the coming months. That, that is going to be quite prominent and as a result of which businesses should look to mitigate any abrupt regulatory decisions through monitoring some of these local developments. So the message really is go look local, look at what's happening in the local environment, what's the impact on the business landscape, what are some of the socioeconomic pressures at a local level that continue to play out. And this is across South Asia, not, not just India and Bangladesh. And uh, whether some of these local factors are triggering unrest or any kind of immediate abrupt regulatory decisions. That's going to be one key message. I think the second key message uh, will be around while the, the story about technology-based investments is quite strong, I think equally how political leaders view technology-based investments, like do they see it as a threat to job creation? Like 
automation, for instance, is very much in that space where perceived more as a threat than a, a generator of revenue and investments. So how political leaders broadly navigate uh, the technology landscape is also a key factor for uh, investors to watch out for because it's likely to be a tech-based recovery. I think, and finally, a lot of questions that clients have been asking us is also about what, what the local and en- operational environment looks like, uh, wh- what is health infrastructure looking like at the local levels, uh, at the city level and at the town level, how, how, how is the state or how is the city preparing itself for renewed infection surges? So some of these operational elements on the back of the vaccination programs and infection surges will also continue to be a very key uh, issue for investors to watch out for. Very good. So, I mean, essentially what you're saying is the kind of tug of war between policy and regulation and getting more jobs and investment. Technology is the second kind of big you know, decisive factor and public health infrastructure and how it copes with uh, any potential waves of infection. Thank you very much, Eamon. That was a very insightful and interesting discussion. Much appreciate you being on this show today. Bye for now. Thanks, Amit. If you enjoyed what you heard on this episode of In Focus, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And be sure to subscribe to our other podcasts as well, such as The Global Insight, our fortnightly panel discussion exploring the impact of the most pressing issues on global business. All of our podcasts are available wherever you listen. Just search Control Risks. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we are helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient by visiting controlrisks.com.